Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. We are once more in the season of Epiphanies, although we will not be there much longer. Next week is the last week of Epiphanies. And after that, we're into Lent. Now, we'll keep right on moving through John, but the year, it is moving along. So we are going to do John chapter 7. This is a, it's a long section. It's got about 52 verses. Feel free to follow along with me or, or feel free to just listen. Uh, if there's nobody in front of you, you can put your feet up on the chair. That's fine. But just here, as, as I'm reading this to you, I want you to notice how people keep getting Jesus wrong, how they keep misunderstanding his motives and what he's about and why he's doing. Notice all the contrasts between Jesus and then these wide different groups of people as we go through this. So John chapter seven, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judah because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went up also, not publicly, but in secret, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and they were asking, where is he? Among the crowd, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, well, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to preach. And the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses but the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? But here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word about him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. And when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. But I'm not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, 
I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks also? What did he mean when he said, you'll look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. On hearing his word, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. And others said, he's the Messiah. But still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. And Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So John starts us off by setting the stage. Jesus cannot stay in Judea because they want to kill him, right? So we now have set out this dichotomy. There's Jesus on one side and there's people wanting to kill him on the other. We're out of the realm of mere disagreements and arguments and into the realm of, I'm going to kill you for that. And so Jesus can't be in Judea. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Jews live in Judea, which is in the south, and they also live in Galilee, which is in the north, and Samaria is in between them. And so the Jewish rulers in Judea, they have no authority in Galilee. It's like the governor of Georgia. He can't tell the police in Mississippi what to do. So Jesus leaves. He goes back to Galilee. And notice now, as people begin to misunderstand him over and over and over again, the first people are his brothers who say to him in verse three, hey, what are you doing here? Why aren't you in Judea? Why aren't you in Jerusalem? There is this big festival coming up, the festival of booths. It's one of the three biggies in Judaism. Everybody is supposed to be there. It's huge. And his brothers misunderstand Jesus' motivations. They assume that he's doing and teaching and going around because he's looking for fame. He's looking to be famous and to be important. And they're like, why are you here? You know, if you want to have a music career, don't do it in Peoria, Illinois. It's just not going to happen. You need to go to Nashville. You need to go to LA. There's nothing going on in the middle of Illinois. What are you doing here, Jesus? His brothers say, if you're going to be famous, you got to go down and be famous. You got to go to Jerusalem. His brothers, they don't believe him. They don't understand him. They misunderstand his, his motives. The next people we meet are the crowd and they're actually scattered throughout this whole story. At first we meet them in verse 12 and they're having this debate on whether Jesus is really a good guy or not. I mean, they, they've seen him do things. They've seen him heal people. They've heard him teach. 
But there's this debate going back and forth. Oh yeah, he's doing those things because he's a good man and other people think it's like a conspiracy theory or something. Like, I think he's trying to deceive people. He's not really like that. They have another argument starting down at verse 25 when they're asking each other, wait a minute, (laughs) aren't they trying to kill this guy? So why is he standing here openly and no one's doing anything? And they start to ask the question, is he the Messiah? And then they continue that in verse 40 when the crowd picks it up again. Is this the Messiah? Is this the prophet? And do you notice they give two reasons why they don't think he's the Messiah or at least the people arguing that no, no, that's not the Messiah. They give two reasons. One is back in verse 27. Well, we know where this man is from. And when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. And presumably that's because he's Jesus of Nazareth. Like, we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. And nobody's going to know where the the Messiah is from. And then on further in verse 42, it's like, boy, isn't the Messiah from Bethlehem? And again, this is Jesus of Nazareth. And isn't it interesting that they're wrong on both counts? Like, we don't know where the Messiah is going to come from. That's not in the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere, that you're not going to know where the Messiah, like, like, we have no idea why they're saying that. Somebody's just tossing that out as an argument. Well, we're not going to know where he's from, and we know where this guy is from, and then later, the argument is, we do know where he's from. The first argument was, we don't know where he's from. The second argument is, we do know where he's from. He's from Bethlehem. This guy's not from Bethlehem, but he is. (laughs) If you bothered to check, you'd find out that he is from the line of David. Both his mother and his father are descendants of David. He was born in his dad's hometown of Bethlehem. He didn't move to Nazareth until he was somewhere between two and four years old but they don't check. They just confidently assert, oh, well, we know this and we know this and, and he can't be the Messiah. They get Jesus wrong because they don't check. And who knows why they're tossing out some of these arguments. And the last people who get him wrong is the rulers. They send guards to arrest him. Now, John doesn't tell us this, but one of the things that's going on is there have been a number of uprisings before here. There have been a number of guys who have come into Jerusalem and said, I am the Messiah. I will lead you. We will drive out the Romans. Come to me. As you can imagine, the Romans aren't real big fans of that. There's fighting. There's oppression. I mean, they tell stories 10 years before this of an uprising where the Romans just crucified thousands of people. On every road, every mile, there was a cross with someone hanging on it, and it just went everywhere in the country. There have been some really bad things that have happened from guys who, were, who claimed to be the Messiah, and they're afraid Jesus is gonna do this again. We don't hear it in John, we hear it in, in Luke, but they have a debate about, you know, is this guy gonna start an uprising? We gotta do something about this. They send guards to arrest him, but the guards come back without him. They're like, um... This guy doesn't sound, I think the guards are saying, this guy doesn't sound like he's doing an uprising. This guy doesn't sound like what we expected him to sound like. And we're also told it just wasn't his time yet. So no one could touch him. They come back to the rulers and say, we need to listen to this guy. Something's off here. Something's going on. And the rulers respond with, we don't have to listen to him. We already know. None of us believe in him. So therefore, it can't possibly be true. And when Nicodemus is like, no, I think we should listen to them. He's like sticking up for the guards. Like, I I think they're right. We ought to listen to them before we just decide, right? They just abuse Nicodemus. 
They abused the guards. They abused Nicodemus. They abused the crowd. Again, they get Jesus wrong. And their final response at the end of verse 52 is the best one. Look into it. You will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Except that they have. Jonah. Jonah the prophet is from Gathalper, which is in Galilee. Micah is from Morsheth, which we're pretty sure was in Galilee. Elijah, you've probably heard of him, the prophet, he was from Gilead. There's two Gileads. One's in Galilee and one's south of it. Like there's absolutely the prophet Jonah is from Galilee. Micah's probably from, from Galilee. And Elijah, 50-50 chance, he's from Galilee. And these guys who know the Bible, they know the scriptures. They're like, oh, check it out. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. End of discussion, done. They completely misunderstand. And they just, they've already decided. They've decided what they think and why they think it. And they just justify themselves. Oh, well, there's no prophet from Galilee. Except there is. Certainly one, probably more. You know, I read how his brothers and the crowd and the rulers respond to him. And it's just like, wow, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because you could pull all of this discussion out of a discussion you'd have with people today. They're saying exactly the same things. Look what Jesus says to his brothers. When his brothers are like, hey, dude, you, you got, if you're gonna be famous, you're not gonna be famous here. It's the middle of nowhere. Go to Jerusalem. And Jesus says to them in verse six, my time is not yet here. But Jesus says, I'm on a timetable. I can't just do whatever I want whenever I want it. I'm on someone else's timetable, in fact. We find out later in the passage, he's on God's timetable. And he's actually said that earlier in chapter five. I only do what God tells me to do. I only say what God tells me to say. Jesus says, I can't just go where I wanna go. I am on a schedule. My life is constrained by someone else's desires. But you, he says to them, for you, any time will do. Because they can do whatever they want. Whenever they want, they're not constrained. Now think about what are the things we say in our world today about how you should live? You do you. Live your truth. Right? I'm not sure of this. I didn't research it. But live unconstrained. That's got to be a slogan for something. There's got to be a car company or LinkedIn or something where that's their slogan. Life unconstrained. You do whatever you want, whenever you want it. His brothers are saying to him the exact same thing people say all the time. Hey, this is what I want, so go do it. You want to be famous? Go be famous. You need this? Go, go get that. And Jesus is like, no. No, that's not how I live my life. I live my life by someone else's schedule, he says. When the crowd is questioning if Jesus is the Messiah, there are two mutually exclusive arguments put out. One is we don't know where the Messiah comes from, which isn't true, that's not in scripture. And the other is we do know where the Messiah comes from. Well, which is it? Doesn't matter. I did debate in high school. 
in your debate, you've got the affirmative team, which has got to present something, and you've got the negative team, which has got to shoot it down. The great thing about being the negative team is you didn't have to be consistent. You didn't have to be logical. You just toss out anything you want. It doesn't matter if your own arguments contradict each other. If they don't answer all of them, you win. That's like, that's what these guys are doing. Well, this guy, he's from Nazareth. We know where he's from. He can't possibly be the Messiah. Nobody knows where the Messiah is going to come from. Sure they do. It says in the scriptures he's going to come from Bethlehem. Oh, well, sure, we know where the Messiah is going to come from. He's going to come from Bethlehem. That can't be this guy. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Just tossing out arguments. Because for whatever reason, some of these guys, they don't want him to be the Messiah. So, boom, we'll toss this, we'll toss this. I have a friend who says that, you know, we love as humans to say, oh, we're, we're rational creatures. Anybody studied economics, right? It's all based on rational actors and that sort of thing. My friend said they actually put people in an MRI so you could watch what parts of the brain light up. And they asked them questions to make decisions, like how should you respond in this thing? And he says the first thing that lights up in the human brain is the decision-making part. And then after that, the logical part lights up. We make a decision. We hear something, we make a decision. We make a choice. And then our brain starts processing, okay, how am I gonna justify this? How am I gonna explain this? That's exactly what these guys are doing. Oh, we know where he's from. He can't possibly be the Messiah. No, we, we know where the Messiah's come. Exactly, we know where the Messiah's coming from. He can't possibly be the Messiah. They're just tossing out arguments to justify what they want. And finally, we get the rulers. When the guards come back and say, oh, something about this guy, we need to listen to this guy. And Nicodemus says, yeah, of course we do that. that we don't just have trials and pronounce people guilty. We listen to them. There's evidence, there's testimony. That is in the law. You have to have a trial. You have to have witnesses. You can't condemn someone for no reason just because you don't like it. The ruler's response is, well, we've decided, so it can't possibly be true. We've decided that this is what it is, so this is what it is. We don't need to discuss it. We don't need to argue it. We don't need any witnesses. And if you disagree with us, well, you're an idiot and a moron, or worse, you're a Galilean. Because Galilee's the sticks. You know, it's way up north. Judah has been settled by the Jews since Moses. They got exiled and came back several 50 some odd years later. But it has been Jewish for centuries. They've only settled, settled Galilee in like the last 100 years or so. So that, that's the boondocks. That's the country cousins. You, we've decided this. You don't agree with us? You're an idiot. You're a moron. You're a Galilean. You don't know anything. Now, does that sound anything like the way discussions go on today? It hasn't public discourse turned into name calling. That's pretty much all it is. That's what these guys are doing. They're not explaining why they think he's not the Messiah. They're not explaining any of their thought process. What? You, we've decided he's not the Messiah. Discussion over. The crowd, morons, all of them. Nicodemus, you're a Galilean. Prophets don't come from Galilee. Everyone knows that. Except, of course, they do. They're just stating it. They've decided, end of discussion. This sounds so much like our world today. What we say is important, how we argue, how we discuss things. I mean, you could pull this right out of stories from today. And I hope I don't have to prove to you that the brothers and the crowd and the rulers 
are the bad guys in this story. They're not the people that we're supposed to act like. We're not supposed to be like the people who say, oh no, that Jesus, we don't trust him and he's not the Messiah and we've already figured this out. Scripture tells us we're supposed to be like him. That's our job. We're supposed to be like Jesus. So how does Jesus act? Like, let's go back through the story and look at what Jesus says. What does he do? How does he respond? So we go back in verse six, the first time that he says something, he tells his brothers, as we said, hey, I'm not on my schedule. It's not my decision. It's God's. I don't just go where I wanna go and do what I wanna do. It has to be God who does that. Jesus says, my life is constrained by someone else. He says in verse seven, because of this, says the world hates me. The world hates me because I tell it the truth. And wow, isn't that still true today? Do not tell people that their lives are constrained. Do not tell people that there is truth and that you have to abide by it. Like that will get you hated. That will get you treated just like the Pharisees treated the the guards and Nicodemus when they told them something they didn't wanna hear. Jesus goes down in verse 16. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Just like he said to his brother, I can't go where I wanna go when I wanna go there. I'm constrained by someone else's timetable. I can't say what I wanna say whenever I wanna say it. I'm constrained, he says. I say what God tells me to say. And this echoes what we read back in chapter five. Jesus says, look, I only say what God tells me to say. I only do what God tells me to do. And he's saying these same things. I go when God tells me to go. I go where God tells me to go. I talk to who God tells me to talk to. I say the things God tells me to say. Jesus says his life is bound up in what God wants because it's God teaching. Not necessarily what he wants, although we know from other places in scripture that his will and God's will are the same. But he is constrained by all these things. He says in verse 18, I'm not seeking my own glory. That's what his brother said. You you, you want to be famous? You, You should go to Jerusalem and be famous. It's like, I'm not here for me. I'm here for God's glory. I'm not building my kingdom, he says. I'm building God's kingdom. That's why I'm here. So in verse 24, he tells the crowd to they need to judge correctly. And again, you can imagine how they would have responded to being told they're not judging right. It's like, you need, to, I think he's saying, you need to stop doing what you're doing, which is just tossing stuff out. You, you, you need to look, you need to examine. If they checked, they'd find out he was from Bethlehem. He does meet what the scripture says. You need to stop judging on appearances. And he's actually, he's echoing a messianic prophecy in Isaiah, which says that when, the, when this guy comes that we've been looking for, he won't judge on what he sees and what he hears, but he'll judge on the truth. And Jesus says, y'all need to start judging on the truth. You need to stop looking just at this. And you need to look down here. In verse 33, he tells them, I only have a little bit of time. Again, my time's not my own. I don't have infinite time. I can't do what I want whenever I want. It can't take as long as I want. I have a set amount of time to do the things that I am supposed to do. And finally, in verse 37, he tells us why. After all of this back and forth with the crowd and all these people misunderstanding him, in verse 37, he finally stands up and tells people why. Why is his life 
constrained. Why has he put himself under all of these different constraints? Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And you don't know this because you've never seen the days of Sukkoth, the days of the booth. But it's a seven-day festival. And the first thing that happens every morning is there's a processional. The high priest takes this pitcher from the temple and everybody files out to this spring by the walls. And he fills the pitcher with water and everybody files back up to the temple and they pour the water out on the altar of God. Because the water is symbolic of the water that came from the rock. You're, you're living in booths for a week to remember the exodus. You're remembering that for 40 years, your ancestors never had houses. They never had a place to stay. They lived in tents. So you live in, tent for a, you live in a tent for a week each year to remember that. And they'll pour this water out on the altar each day to commemorate that God provided them with food and water. That whole 40 years, they were in the desert. Uh, I don't know if you've ever lived in the desert. I have. We lived at the edge of the Sahara Desert. Nothing grows there. It's sand. But they ate and they drank because God provided for them. And so they pour out that water every day on the altar. It's also, you are smack dab in the driest time of the year at this point in Israel. And so they would also pray for rain because the harvest season is done. It's a couple months later. They're gonna have to soon get the ground ready to plant. And if it is bone dry and there's no water, that ain't gonna work very well. So they pour out water every day on the altar to, to say, remember how God provided for this. And then they ask him to provide again. Lord, provide water again. And sometime after that ceremony, Jesus stands up in front of everybody and says, if you need water, come to me. Because if you will believe in me, it will flow out of you. You won't need to go down to the well. All, you won't need it to come out of the rain. Living water will flow out of you. The same image he used with the woman at the well in chapter four. If you're looking for water, Jesus says, you need to come to me. Jesus is on a mission. He is on a mission to, as John will say, bring the spirit after he's glorified. His glorification is his death and his resurrection. Jesus is on a mission to save people. He's on a mission to be water for people. The, the same way that God kept them alive in the desert by miraculously providing water. Remember, there's a story, they, there's no water and it just comes out of a rock. Moses hits the rock with a staff, the rock splits open and enough water comes out of it. They're talking about a couple million people and all their cattle. It's just water just comes flowing out of this rock for everyone. That's what Jesus is gonna do. He is going to bring that water to anyone who is willing to take it. He is on a mission. That means his life is constrained. That means he can't just decide whatever he wants to decide. He can't just do whatever he wants to do. He can't just toss out arguments. He can't make decisions and then justify them. He's got to follow God. He's got to do what God tells him. And so the question I ask myself as I'm reading through this and studying is a question I'm gonna ask you. Whose life does yours look more like? 
Like be honest with yourself. Be ruthlessly honest. Does your life look like Christ? Are you on a mission? Are you constrained? Do you make choices based on the mission? You can't go wherever you want to go. You can't buy whatever you want to buy. You can't be whatever you want to be. You have a mission. In case you're not aware of that, walk back out that door on your way out and look to your left. Because we've put it up there on the wall in big letters. Be disciples, make disciples. That's our mission. That's what Jesus gave to his followers. That's what he told us to do. We are all supposed to be doing that. As you walk out the door, you'll be reminded again because it says you're sent. You're sent out into the world. Not to be like Jesus' brothers. It's like, yeah, go do whatever you want. And not to be like the crowd. It's like, well, yeah, uh, it could be. Uh, I, I, I think it's this and I think it's this. And I don't, I don't care if those don't work together. This is what I want. And don't be like the rulers. Well, I believe this and anybody who disagrees with me is an idiot and I couldn't care less. We're to be like Christ. We have a mission. That means we must constrain ourselves. That means our time is not our own. And Jesus said that, right? I've got a limited amount of time. I've got certain things that I have to do within this limited amount of time. And that is true for all of us, brothers and sisters. All of us are on a mission and we need to live like Jesus. There's places in our lives where we need to constrain ourselves like he did. We need to choose not to spend our time that way. We need to choose not to spend our energy that way. We need to choose not to spend our money that way. Whatever it is, I don't know the places where God is calling you into this mission. I know the places God is calling me. But he's gonna send you to whomever he's gonna send you to. His mission for you is gonna look different probably than it does for the person sitting next to you. But you absolutely have a role to play in what the Lord is doing to redeem the earth, to bring everyone back, to put everything under the feet of Christ. That means like Jesus, you gotta go where you're sent. You can't just go where you want. It means like Jesus, you gotta say what you're supposed to say. You can't just say what you want. It means like Jesus, you have a limited amount of time to do the work that's been given to you. And you can't just decide whatever you wanna decide. Jesus is our model in this. So as we close this part of our service, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask the Lord to speak to you, right? What's your mission? If you don't know the people he's calling you to, if you don't know the places he wants you to be, I'm going to ask him to share that, to, to, to speak that to you. And then I'm asking him to tell you what that means. How do you need to constrain yourself like Jesus did? How do you need to limit your time? How do you need to limit what you say? How do you need to go someplace maybe you don't want to go? Maybe at a time you don't want to go there. How do you need to do the things that the Lord has called you to do? Because that's what Jesus is doing. So let's pray. Oh Lord, I confess, I want my life to be my own. I do want to be like the brothers in the crowd and I want to believe whatever I want to believe and, and I want to decide what I want to decide and I want to go where I want to go. And Jesus, I, I readily confess that, that I want to be my own master and yet you, who are Lord of the universe, you are not your own master. You followed your father. You did what your father told you when he told you to do it. You went where your father sent you. You said what your father told you to say. 
Lord Jesus, that's who we wanna be. We wanna do all of that with you and for you. We wanna go where you want us to go and we wanna say what you want us to say and we wanna play the roles that you have for us to play as you redeem the world. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would illumine us, that we would know if there are ways that we're not acting like you. We're acting like the brothers and, and saying we can do whatever we want or, or we're acting like the, the rulers who've said, oh, I've decided this and anybody who disagrees with me is an idiot. Lord, how, how, how do we need to be like you? Are there places in our lives Are there places with how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our energy that that we need to constrain ourselves like you did to do the mission that you have given us? Just exactly what you did to do the mission your father gave you. And thank you that that's not ours. We don't have to be killed for the sins of the world. Lord, I pray for us. Speak to us as we take communion together, as we sing again another song, as we leave here, we are sent, as we become the church scattered. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Are there places where we're not acting like Jesus and we need to start? And Lord, we pray this in your name always. We pray everything in your name. This is for your kingdom. Just like you said, you did this not for yourself, not for your glory, not for your kingdom, not for your fame, but for your father's. And Jesus, we do this, not for our glory, not for our kingdom, not for our fame, but for you, for what you have done in redeeming the world. So we pray always in your name, Jesus. Amen.